And so our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 11, looking at verses 10 to 32. Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 32. Before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing on the reading. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now seek to study your word, the Holy Scriptures, Father, I pray that you would indeed make us ready, willing and prepared to receive your scriptures for what they are, the very words of God. Father, may our hearts be meek. Father, may we be made willing to obey, to learn and to grow in Christ-likeness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 11, starting at verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Apashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Apashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Apashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Apashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Amen. And may God bless that word to us. So our text this morning is kind of a bridge. It's, or if you want to think of it, stepping stones. It's a two-step two-step stepping stone that gets us from the Tower of Babel to the call of Abram. From God's gracious judgment, if you remember the Tower of Babel, it was a rebellion. The people sought to build a tower to reach into the heavens. They sought to establish themselves with man-made religion and man's own wisdom in spite of that which the Lord had commanded. And God dispersed them, confused them, divided them by language, and it would seem divided the whole earth. We now get two genealogies which form, as I said, the stepping stones to Abram. 
The first is that of Shem. The second is that of Terah. Shem, by the way, if you've heard of the word Semite, often you will hear the word anti-Semite. It comes from that idea of Shem, of the line of Shem. God is basically telling us how he got to Abram. Now, the text from verse 10 to verse 26, it's really quite simple. You know, someone fathered someone, lived a certain amount of time, then they died and they had other sons and daughters. Someone fathered someone, they lived a certain amount of time, then they died and then they had other sons and daughters. So let's first of all deal with that aspect of the text. What do you get from that kind of text? What do you get from a genealogy? Well, the first thing I want you to be aware of is that the Bible is presenting itself as truth. It's not presenting itself as a myth. The very first time I approached the scriptures, the very first time I read the scriptures, I was um, 20 years old. That, that woman there who's now my wife, I would have called myself an atheist. That woman there who is now my wife, she gave me a Bible, challenged me to read it. It just so happened that I'd always wanted to read the Bible and I started the book of Genesis and just worked my way forward. I was actually impressed by the genealogies. I wasn't, I wasn't as it were, um, thinking that this is something to be skipped over, this is something to pay no attention to. I realised this book is not presenting itself as a collection of fables. It's not as though I'm reading the, the fables of Enoch here. The Bible is presenting itself to me as a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. It's presenting itself to me as a written and readable and an understandable history. I'm expected to accept that these people are real people. I'm expected to accept that God had a hand in their lives. Apart from faith, even if you accept that this was true, you might say, so here we have just the happenstance of humanity. A man meets a woman, a man has children, those children grow up, they themselves meet their spouses, they have children, etc., etc., etc. But from faith, what we get is that God is intending to get to that man called Abram. Abram is to become the main, the main character of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 onwards. His sons also become very important characters, or Isaac becomes an important character, followed by Jacob, followed by Joseph. But Abram becomes, in a way, the central figure of the Old Testament. Perhaps, perhaps uh, Moses equals Abram in terms of um, the importance of Moses in Old Testament history, but Abram is basically the man. Remember in the New Testament, believers are not called the offspring of Moses or Joseph or Isaiah or David. Believers are called by faith the offspring of Abram because like Abram had saving faith, believers have saving faith. So we're the spiritual offspring, as it were, the spiritual children of Abram. Where the pro God made a promise to Abram that the whole world would be blessed through Abram and that his people would possess the whole world. My friends, we who are in Christ, we are the fulfilment of that promise, the ongoing fulfilment of that promise made to Abram. Where Abram, if you want to think of it, filling the world according to the promise of God. The next thing that I want you to see in, um, in the genealogy is just a simple thing, but back at Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, when man had um, sinned 
against the Lord. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. If you think about Genesis up to that point, men were living very long lives, 900 years, 900 plus. But God said, no, man is to live a short life. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. If you um, were to take all of these names and their relative ages and put them together on a graph or on some kind of table, what you would see is that basically generation by generation, the lifespan is getting shorter. It's getting closer and closer to that lifespan of somewhat around about 100 years. Later on in Psalm 90 verse 10, Moses writes Psalm 90 and Moses said the years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Lives are being shortened. And notice from Genesis 6 verse 3, it's God's spirit that is giving the length of life. God's spirit. I'll ask you a question now. Do you accept that the length of your life has been given to you by God's spirit? You say, what if I get taken out by a car crash or a disease or whatever? I still say to you that the length of your life has been given to you by God. That it's, if you want to think of it this way, written by God. Somewhere on a scroll in heaven. We're not going to live a day longer than we're meant to live. We're not going to live one day less. Our lives are totally, utterly in the hands of God. So lives are getting shorter. I think that this is actually a gracious and merciful judgment. Honestly, I do. Just as I thought that um, God separating the peoples by languages and scattering them throughout the earth was a gracious and merciful judgment. It was surely an act of judgment that God separated the peoples after they had united against himself. And so he came down and he looked at their foolish tower and their foolish efforts and he said, these people have united against me, I'm going to separate them. He didn't destroy them. He separated them. He sent them out into the world. Remember, God always knew the plan. You know, it's God's own plan. You know, he's going to send along his son incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to send his church out into the world, go out into all the world, preaching the gospel, bringing people into the kingdom of God. So it was a judgment, but it was a merciful judgment. And I would say that God's shortening of the human lifespan is also a merciful judgment. Imagine the levels of sin or the, you know, should I call it the heights of sin to which we would rise or the, or the depths of sin to which we would fall if we could say to ourselves, well, I expect I'll live for another 800 years. You know, there's a lot of things I can put on my list of things I want to do. And I've got 800 years to repent. You know, that's, that's what people are like. I'm sorry, you know. You know, we all wish, don't we, that people were wise and trustworthy and generally speaking good. But let's be honest here. (laughs) You know, you don't live very long in the world and you come across people who are dishonest in their dealings, foolish in all that they do. And you realise that no one is generally speaking good in all that they think. The reminder of mortality is actually God being gracious. God has said that the wages of sin are death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But how often do we honestly think in the long term? How often do we honestly think of decades, 
centuries, generations, and on into eternity. It's pretty easy for us even now. It's pretty easy for humanity even now to tell itself it's going to live forever. Nothing's going to take me out. You know, it's, it's, it's a very common um, delusion that we have. I get hurt in a car crash, they'll fix me up, they'll patch me up. I get sick, there's some kind of medicine that will make me better. There's a disease, they'll immunise me against it. I'll live, I'll just live, I'll survive, death won't come for me. You know, guys used to go away to war. They'd go away, for example, in a ship, off into battle. And they'd look at the statistics, and the statistics would tell them that, you know, 6% of all men who went into battle in this type of ship die. And they'd say, well, you know, there's, there's 300 men on the ship. That means 18 are going to die. I'm only one of 300. Chances are I'll survive. I'll live till the next one. And on and on and on. Mortality, when we think about it, is actually something that brings us wisdom. Remember, it was also Moses in Psalm 90 who prayed that the Lord would teach us to number our days. Teach us to live wisely in the light of our mortality. So the lifespan is getting shorter and shorter. It's getting closer to that which um, would be familiar to people like you and I. All of these generations, all of these generations, people, sons, daughters, all of these generations... And God's got one family line in mind. One. One. You know, this is preparation. We're going to get to Abram, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's going to have 12 sons. Of those 12 sons will be Judah. We're going to go through Judah to David. God's going to make a promise to David that David would have an heir that sits on the throne forever and ever. We get to one called Jesus, born of the house of David, who sits at the right hand of God, enthroned in heaven on high. God is working salvation here in Genesis chapter 11, just as much as he is working salvation in any other chapter of the Holy Scriptures. These things are happening in the providence of God. So let's get down to basically specifics. What do we draw from um, this text in particular? And now I'm looking at the final part of it. As I said, the the genealogies themselves, they're fairly self-explanatory. They give us almost no details about anyone from Shem as far as Terah. We know that they lived. We know that they married. We know that they had children. We know that after they had children, at some point along the way, they die. We then get to Terah, who fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. What do we see? Well, let's notice, first of all, verse 30. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Abram has a wife. Her name is Sarai. She's barren and has no child. The names of Abram and Sarai are significant. They actually have meanings. Abram means exalted father. Exalted father. Sarai means princess. God has drawn together in his providence an exalted father and a princess. But she's barren. What could this tell us? What can this be teaching us? 
Life comes from God. My friends, what is entry into the body of Christ called in the New Testament? You know, we we have all sorts of phrases, but basically what do we call it? What, for example, does Jesus call it in John chapter 3? Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, just reading from verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. To have life, to have eternal life, To be in Christ, to be saved, to have saving faith. What is what is required? Miraculous help from the Holy Spirit of God. One must be born again. One must be born again by the water, which I think is a reference back to the prophecy in Isaiah that God would would wash or sprinkle his people with clean water and the spirit. The power of God's Holy Spirit. To be in Christ, one needs Christ in the heart. To be in God, God must be in us. One must be born of the Spirit. Sarai was barren. She had no child. And later on in the book of Genesis, we find that it is God who gives birth by promise. Remember the child of the promise. What did we read in in Romans 9 earlier? The child of the promise, the children of the promise. These are the children of Abram. Sarai was barren. So God has drawn together an exalted father and a princess, yet they have no children. What else do I want us to think about as we read this? I want us to think about three things. Three things, Let's, let me lay them out before you. Failure, death and promise. Failure, death and promise. Just look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, and let's look at the failure. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Hayah and his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Failure. In the Old Testament, what's the, um, the type or the picture, if you like, of eternal life? What is it that the descendants of Abram longed for? They longed to enter into the promised land. When the people were wandering in the wilderness, having been set free from slavery in Egypt, what was, it, what was the promise that was out there in front of them always? 
the promised land. We shall enter into the promised land. What was God's punishment of those people when they sinned terribly against him and refused to enter the promised land on their first approach to the borders? This generation shall die. You will not enter the promised land. Your children will enter the promised land. And the promised land was Canaan. Looking back at the prophecy in Genesis chapter 9 that we also read earlier, we notice that God has said in verse 26 of Genesis 9, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. He's heard of what God said through Noah, that the descendants of Shem shall rule over the Canaanites. And he's decided to head for the land of Canaan. Now, if you got your got a got a map of Old Testament cities and places, you would find that the that the way from Chaldea, from the Cal, from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan, you would find that it's basically almost due west, just a little bit north of due west. And you would see that the city of Haran is actually far to the north. So Terah sets out with all sorts of good intentions. We're going to the land of Canaan, takes an indirect route, finds a town along the way, and for whatever reason, whether he's old and tired and feels he's not going to make it to Canaan, or whether his his um, faith being put to the test has failed, we don't know. We, we just don't know exactly why, but this we know for sure. He set out for Canaan and he didn't get there. His plan was to go to where God had said the descendants of Shem would rule over the descendants of Canaan. That was his plan and he failed. Failure. This is the story of humanity. Failure. Everything that we seek to do by our own strength, by our own wisdom, by our own power, ultimately comes to failure. Even when we seek to do that which God commands, if we do it apart from the help of the Holy Spirit of God, we come to failure. We want to live good and decent lives. You know, there are people who are not Christians want to live good and decent lives. They don't want to be breaking the law of God every second day. But what happens? Break the law of God. Failure. Failure is the way of sinful humanity. We don't succeed. We don't make it. You know, we want perfect cities, perfect life, perfect roads, perfect families, etc., etc. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the help of God's Holy Spirit, failure, constantly, always, failure. The next thing I want us to think about is death. Looking back now at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Now, from both the listings of names, it appears that Haran was probably the youngest. His youngest son. Now, I can tell you something. I'll tell you this for a fact. I've got four children. I don't want to outlive them. I don't. I don't want to preach at their funeral services. I don't want to see them put in the ground. That would be a very painful experience for me, even though I have every reason to trust that they're walking with the Lord and will have gone on to a better place. Even so, I don't want to bury my own children. Terah buried the one that appears to have been his youngest, the one that you would have thought would have survived for the longest. Death. Failure and death. The way of humanity. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin in death is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death. We don't like it. We try to pretend it's not going to happen. We don't like to see it. We don't like to acknowledge it. We would rather that people died somewhere else, not in our houses. We have hospices and we have elderly people's homes, etc., etc., where we, where we would rather that people died. It's more convenient and it's more comfortable. We spend our whole lives these days trying to deny mortality. But the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And so here in this genealogy, we see that mankind apart from God is doomed to failure and that mankind apart from God is destined to die. Death. You might wonder, what kind of people were these people? Were they all believers? We have no reason to think so. It appears that Abram was converted somewhere in Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord God called him. It says that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, if you want to turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, and we read from verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. The named people are Terah, and Abram and Nahor. And we're told that when they lived beyond the river, they served other gods. And the archaeological evidence is that the Chaldeans were primarily worshippers of the moon. An idolater. A worshipper of heavenly bodies. What kind of people were these people? Well, there was nothing righteous in them. Nothing of their own. They had no righteousness of their own. 
There was no reason that God should set his favour upon them. There was no reason that God should choose them to be the line of the Saviour. It's always of grace, my friends. It's always of grace. People are born in sin. And and unless God himself intervenes, people will die in their sins. It's much easier to be an idolater than it is to be one who has true faith in the living God. It's much easier to believe lies than it is to believe the truth. Why do I say that? Well, when you're in sin, lies are attractive. When, when, when you don't have the spirit of God to prompt you, lies are attractive. It's, it's much better to believe or much easier to believe there is no God, therefore I can do as I please. Or if you're going to have a God, let that God be an idol. Let that God be some non-God who doesn't challenge you, who doesn't make your life difficult, who doesn't demand things of you. These people were idolaters who were familiar with failure and death. Failure, death, and as I've said, promise. We have Abram, exalted father, and Sarai, the princess. God has drawn two people together, and we are to understand that God's plan is to work salvation through these two people. God has a plan that encompasses generations. Now, when we talk of salvation as Christians, we think of Jesus and we think of his work on the cross and we think of him dying in our place and we think of him raised on the third day. We think of him ascended on high, interceding for us even now. He accomplished our salvation, he worked our salvation and even now he saves us. His intercession in heaven on our behalf maintains, as it were, and strengthens our salvation as the days go by. But we need to understand God thinks in terms of all of humanity. And even here, back in ancient history, God is working salvation. He has drawn together this couple and his plan is that from them, from their family line, he would work salvation. A miraculous plan. A miraculous plan. An almighty plan. God is going to take idolaters, mortal idolaters. God is going to take a barren woman, a woman who is not having children, in a day when no one had contraceptives. God is going to take idolaters and a barren woman. And from them, he's going to work salvation. His plan has already started. It's already unfolding before our eyes. God is working through the generations to bring forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that specific revelation of salvation starts with Abram and Sarai. My friends, all the world apart from Christ, is still dominated by failure and death. And all the world can only find salvation through faith in the promises of God, which are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in things that are real, 
but we don't believe in real things that we can measure with tape measures and scales and microscopes. We don't believe in falsehoods. The things that we believe are real, but they are, in a way, things that we cannot prove in terms of what the world demands with regards to proof, scientific proof. God does not submit to our to our uh, tape measures. God does not submit to our demands. God reveals himself according to his own will. God reveals himself in his own way. God has revealed himself in the name or in the form of his person, his son, our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was the plan of God now. I'm sorry, now or back in Genesis chapter 11. Back in Genesis chapter 11, this was the plan of God. Abram believed God, we're told later, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God made a promise. Abram believed the promise. My friends, salvation has only ever come through believing the word of God. Through believing the word of God. Believing the things that it says about us. What does it say about us? Failure and death. That's what it says about humanity. I can say lots of wonderful and good things about humanity. We were created in the image of God, male and female, God made us. We were created to have fellowship with God. We were created thinking, sentient beings to give glory to God. I mean, that's, that's high praise in, in terms of creation. We're not told that angels bear the image of God. We're not. Glorious beings that they are, powerful and mighty spiritual beings that they are. We're told that Adam and Eve bore the image of God. We're told that Adam and Eve were made to procreate. Male and female, God made them to fill the earth with people. Great things can be said about humanity until, of course, you come to that fall in the garden, that eating of the forbidden fruit, that desire to make themselves God. If you eat of it, you will be like God. That sin that dominates humanity. You can say lots of good things about humanity, but unfortunately, when it comes to humanity and its sin, when it comes to mankind as a sinner, you can't say enough bad things. You can't say enough bad things. What law of God is not broken? Indeed, what law of God is not called good these days? I'm sorry. Indeed, the breaking of which law of God is not called a good thing these days? You know, there's a commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So what's that commandment about? Well, let's go back. Male and female, God made them. In his own image, he made them. And he sent them out into the world to bear children. Fill the world with your children. So we have a marriage. We have a man and a woman who are to cleave only to each other, raising children. The law says thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit any sexual uncleanness. Thou shalt not commit sexual wickedness. Thou shalt not break marriage vows. The law doesn't say male and male he made them. Female and female he made them. 
It doesn't say any of those things. But what do we call good these days? Or if you and I might not call it good. But what does the law of the land call good? What's the slogan? How many times has it been repeated? All love is love. Love is love. How can you judge love? And so they pretend that the meaning of a man and a man can be called marriage and the meaning of a woman and a woman can be called marriage. It always um, makes me laugh. I shouldn't say laugh. I guess if I laugh, it's in a bitter way. But remember, there was an enormous sort of um, media stir up a few years ago. There was a particular family and it was the incest family. And there was, uh, I think, five or six of them, three brothers, three sisters. They were living on a farm. They had inbred children. There was all sorts of wickedness and evil going on. And everyone said, oh, it's disgusting. It's evil. It's horrible. Oh, wickedness. Now, I agree. Disgusting, evil, horrible wickedness. Yes, it was. Yes, it is. But do you know what they were saying? We loved one another. At the same time as they were um, making legal homosexual pretend marriage because love is love, at the same time they were screaming, oh, I hate it, oh, it's horrible, about incest. And the people who were guilty of that incest were saying love is love. They can't consistently apply their standards. They can't consistently apply their standards. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's what the law says, isn't it? And in their judgment, they bear false witness. We're supposed to believe that every religion is good as every other religion, but the Lord God says that we shall serve him and him alone and we shall not have an idol before us. We live in a society that, according to its own written law, calls good evil and evil good. Death and failure is all that mankind will ever achieve apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from faith in the promise of God, apart from the help and the power of God's Holy Spirit. My friends, Abram and Sarah are God's promise here in Genesis chapter 11 to all of humanity. Salvation is coming. There will indeed be the seed of the woman who shall crush the head of the serpent. Salvation is coming. The serpent is not God. The serpent does not rule over all of creation. The serpent does not even own humanity. Salvation is coming. My friends, we believe in the same God as Abram. We believe the same promises as Abram, except, of course, we believe that they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the shadow of the cross. We see the light of the cross. We see the fulfilment of the promises of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all who share in the faith of Abram through believing in Christ Jesus who was, in a manner of speaking, a son of Abram, down through the generations. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have eternal life. All who trust in him, repenting of their sins, have 
eternal life. My friends, death and failure might be the way of the world, but it's not the way of God. We look, in the world, we look at the world and we see darkness. Well, my friends, look to God and see the light. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and see the light. And don't let the darkness dim your eyesight. You know, we sing lots of songs, turn your face to Jesus, look full in his wonderful, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to Christ, look to the fulfilled promises, look to the work of God. Darkness has been defeated. Now, dangerous animals are dangerous in their death throes. You kill a snake and it can still bite you and and, um, inject venom into you, even after it's dead. Cut its head off and the jaws are still going like this. And if you're silly enough to let one of those fangs anywhere near you, you'll still get a dose. The serpent's head has been crushed and he wriggles and he writhes. He's in his death throes. He's in his death throes. Okay, he's going to die. It's going to finish sooner or later. But those fangs, they're still, they're still trying to put that poison into the bloodstream of humanity. But the victory's ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as I've said, the promise in this passage comes from the bringing together of Abram and Sarai, the exalted father and the princess, God's bringing his royal family into the world. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of the gospel throughout the nation and throughout the world. Help your servants. Help us, our Father, to grow in faith. Help us, our Father, to come into the light and to seek the light that we find in the face of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.